Welcome to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Uh, we're talking to Malcolm Turnbull today, the former PM and obviously author of a, a new political uh, autobiography, A Bigger Picture. We'll be talking today about industry policy, obviously, lots about NISA and then lots about the future. So first of all, welcome Malcolm Turnbull. Great. Thank you. Great to be with you. Look, I, th- I thought I'd start just by asking you what your day-to-day looks like at the moment. The whole working from home, you're obviously uh, promoting a book via yeah. a podcast like this. So how's that going? Well, it's, you know, it is incredibly busy. I've never done, I don't think anyone's done a virtual book tour before this, uh, but I'm doing a, a lot of, a lot more events and talks and interviews than I could ever have possibly done in a analog world, traveling around the country, flying from city to city. How effective it is, I guess, remains to be seen, although the book is selling well, but Maybe it would have sold better, even better if, if we had more bookshops open and I was doing the traditional author talks and book signings. But uh, so far, I'm well, just today, so far, I've done a, a business, you know, a couple of business video conferences, a radio interview, a, uh, a virtual fireside with Silicon Block. We're doing this podcast. And then I've got two more similar conversations to go and yesterday was even busier and so it's it's very productive and I I think this is one of the interesting things you know that all of us have been aware of the capabilities of video conferencing but you know we probably haven't used it as much as we should have or could have this has forced us to do this and people are realizing how effective it is and I really wonder whether we are going to go back to the old way of working you know, I really wonder whether this isn't going to become much more normal. I mean, I was on a, a business meeting the other day, which was on, wasn't on Zoom, was on uh, Microsoft Teams. And, you know, there were a couple of the people, a couple of directors were saying, well, you know, why am I getting on a plane to fly to Melbourne or Sydney for a meeting? Yeah. Really? You know, why? Why, why, am I, why have I been doing that? This is, this is uh, so much more efficient. And, you know, the benefit, I guess here's the thing. There's no doubt there would be more chemistry engagement if we were sitting across the table from each other, you know, in, in your place in Melbourne. On the other hand, let's say that's 100. Where are we at? Are we at, we're not at 20, we're not at 50. I would say we're somewhere between 65 and 85%. So the marginal value of getting on a plane and flying from one end of the country to the other, is it really worth the effort? You know, there's a, a lot of uh, executives that I've been speaking to via Zoom and, uh, and just phone calls who are, you know, <clears throat> very pleasantly enjoying being at home and not on an aeroplane. So, mm. I mean, the guys who are three weeks and a month overseas mm. uh, are certainly happy to be at home with the kids. Now, so let's talk about industry policy and maybe let's, let's have a look at, at where we are now. I guess Australia's been fortunate. It's had all these uh, years of growth, haven't had a recession in whatever it is. I guess we've mm. got one coming. We've never had that burning platform. We've never had that, yeah. that real motivation 
to, to put some oomph into creation of new industries and new entirely new companies doing entirely new things. So yeah. now, we, now we kind of do. You know, yeah. we've seen holes in our manufacturing system. Yeah. This sovereign, issue of sovereign capability is, a, is an opportunity, surely. Well, yes, it is. I mean, I, I made, uh, and I, so I describe in my book, you know, I made the decision, or my government did, to build all of our new Navy in Australia, uh, which was not my predecessor's intention at all. Now that, you know, a lot of people said, oh, well, that's just, you know, because Markham wants to, you know, um, shore up Christopher Pine's marginal seat in Adelaide. Uh, that's you an know. expensive uh, property. Very, very expensive. Not even Christopher's worth that much. But the, no, but the reason was that I I've very strongly took the view that, you know, we, we needed a sovereign capability in the defence industry. We needed to be more than just a, you know, a consumer of other people's technologies. We need to be building and developing our own technologies. And I had a very strong view that this, that the spillover effects into the rest of the economy are very valuable. You know, it's, again, who knows whether this is um, an apocryphal story or not, but was it Netanyahu? I think it was Netanyahu, but it was one Israeli prime minister, and Bibi's been prime minister for so long, it was probably him. But so Bibi is asked, who founded Israel's technology sector? To which he replied, Charles de Gaulle. How on earth could that be the case? Well, when the French imposed uh, sanctions on Israel and, and stopped exporting defence technology, particularly uh, aircraft, to Israel, the Israelis had to develop their own and had to start you know, working out how to develop their own tech. Now, there's more than a bit of truth in that. There's a role there for industry policy. Having said that, you've got to be careful that if you're going to be supporting particular industries as a government, that you do so in areas where the technologies are very advanced, where there will be real spillover benefits, and that you're not just creating uncompetitive businesses of the kind we used to have when we had big tariff wars. So, so you've got to be careful about it. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you another example of, of a failure of industry policy. So one of the biggest mistakes I think the Americans made and you know and we've got some culpability there as do the British and the Canadians and the New Zealanders is how did we get to the point where not one of the five eyes countries which are the you know the closest in terms of intelligence sharing let alone Japan uh, let alone you know France or Germany have got any capability in wireless Technology, you know, if you if you are Telstra or AT and T, and you want to move to five G, you've got four vendors in the world at the moment. Two of them are Chinese, and two of them are Scandinavian. Now that's that's crackers, mm-hmm. and the Americans allowed that allowed themselves to be undercut on price by the Chinese vendors, and they saw their wireless capability, you know, disappear. And that was a huge mistake. And, you know, now you get all of the problems that arise with Huawei and so forth. So I think that was an example of an absence of mind. And you don't need to have a old-fashioned, inefficient industrial policy to say, hang on, hang on, there are some things we want to be able to make here and we are going to make here. And now for, it's one thing. Australia might say, well, we're a small country, it's, 
we've got to be more selective. But in the United States, gee, you know, how they allowed, you know, Lucent, Motorola, so many others, you know, to be, to, to leave. I mean, Bell Labs, for heaven's sake, yeah. belongs to Nokia. You know, how crazy is that? So, I mean, I guess there's an extension of, the, of, of that, and, and I'll go to the NISA policy. Mm. One, one of your very specific NISA policy aims was government as an exemplar. Yep. Now, now, within that, and that's particularly in the digital space, mm. you'd obviously mm. hired Paul Shetler and set up the DTO and that sort mm. of thing. So that's one area where government can use its procurement mm. sure. levers to, to build a digital industry. I wonder, I mean, can you kind of address how that's gone? I mean, I know changing the way government's public services work mm-hmm. can, can, be, can be tricky, but if you can talk through how that policy went ahead, but also maybe from a sovereign capability perspective now mm-hmm. in this kind of uh, less secure post-COVID environment. Well, I think the, just, just turning to government, the... DTA, or the Digital Transformation Office, later the Digital Transformation Agency, you know, has been very effective. It has, it has achieved, it's gone a long way down the track of digital transformation. It's got a lot more to do. We had some bad luck, I have to say, on the people side. I mean, Paul, who I recruited, he was absolutely my pick. Of course, he's, he recently passed away, which is a great loss. Terrific guy, very, very smart technocrat not a great chief executive you know his his people skills were, were pretty ordinary didn't suffer fools gladly and we had some you know we, we had issues we had issues with the leadership at uh, DTO a good example of a point I often make that you know you can have the best business plan in the world but if you haven't got the right management to implement it it, it won't succeed so you've still got to get the right people doesn't matter how good the plan is I think Governments need to develop more skills in-house. One of the things I pushed against, tried to discourage, and it, it ver- this, is, this, would be, this would take you a decade, by the way, to seriously turn around, is the cult of the consultant. The public service has been de-skilled, and the, the sort of inquiry that I set up when Martin Parkins, you know, was Martin and Martin was Secretary of PMC, I was PM, we set up an inquiry that 30 led into the public service. And it was one of the terms of reference actually addressed this. Now, I think it's, I think regrettably, the enthusiasm for that kind of reform is no longer there. It was a bit of a personal agenda of mine and, and also shared by Martin. But basically, you've had this cult of the consultant to the point where the skills for doing so many things that are really core business are no longer in the public service. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. The ABS and the, the failure on the census night. You know, ABS outsourced all of that to IBM. IBM basically didn't deliver. They, it wasn't a huge Chinese or Russian hack. It was a common or garden denial of service uh, attack. Uh, it was... And they just hadn't they just hadn't fulfilled their contractual obligations, for which they, you know, apologized grovelingly and, you know, and paid some compensation and so forth. But, you know, as I say, I describe all this in my book, as I point out, you can outsource things as much as you like. And you can think that you're outsourcing responsibility, but when things go wrong, the buck ends up on the Prime Minister's desk. Yep. As I found out. 
So that was one. But the other one, and this is a, this is a fascinating little snapshot into what's wrong in Canberra. So I become, I'm, you know, Abbott wins the election, he's PM, I'm communications minister, and one of the things I wanted to do was a rigorous cost analysis of the ABC and, and SBS, but particularly ABC, really to identify where they were doing things less efficiently than they could. In other words, I wanted to see how they could get the same, if not more, bang for less bucks, right? And I've actually, you know, I had done that again, as I talk about in the book, I did that with the 10 network many years ago, you know, more than nearly 30 years ago. So I knew how to do it. And anyway, so I say to the Department of Communications, all right, I want you to do this. And they say, we don't have the skills to do it. I said, how can that be right? I mean, overseeing the, the public broadcasters is your core business. I'm not asking you to do something exotic. They ran a mile. And I, I finally hired, I said, I'm not going to outsource this to KPMG or some consultant for millions of dollars. You're going to do it. And I did one thing. I recruited a um, gentleman who just retired from the, uh, being the CFO of the, of the Seven Network, who had absolutely up-to-date domain expertise. And I said, right, he's your consultant domain expert. And that's it. You've got to do the work yourselves. Now, they learned a lot out of it. But what was fascinating to me was it in something that was clearly core business responsibilities, even there, they wanted a consultant. So this is one of, one of the big challenges we've got in government is that the public service has been de-skilled and, and is being de-skilled. It's worse in some departments than others, but uh, the consultants who obviously make a fortune are really doing, I think, frankly, quite a bit of damage to the culture of the public service. And we've got to, well, they're not doing it deliberately. I'm not criticising yeah. them. I'm just saying that those smart people with those skills and those interests should actually be in the public service. You should be using consultants to do things that are, <clears throat> that are a little bit exotic, that are, that where you need a specialist expertise, you know. So, so that's, uh, I mean, just in, in microcosm, two announcements that came through my inbox today, one was that McKinsey has just won a, a, a million-dollar contract to do a business case study for MyGov, the, um, the, yeah. the, the new entry into MyGov. The other was that uh, the APS announced their digital skills stream for public servants. So that, that goes to the 30 review, 30 recommended. Yeah, the, yeah. The, well, that's good. But, but again, McKinsey, you know, great firm and so forth. We've all got lots of friends who work there. But, but you know, McKinsey... Um, the Rudd government asked McKinsey to write a review of the NBN and concluded that the Rudd strategy of the NBN was going to result in it, you know, being hugely successful, commercially viable, all of those things which were plainly not possible. You know, the internal rate of return the project has at the moment is anemic at best, and that requires some assumptions about a big terminal value in 2040. I, uh, I, I listened to your chapter on the MBN and you have, you have a fairly bulletproof argument. And I think you were also at Startcom last year with uh, Matt Barry on stage and you spoke quite yeah. extensively about MBN. It's been given a fair test, hasn't it, in the last... Yeah, yeah and it's, so. it's, you know, touch wood, he said, reaching out for some timber on his desk. It has held up pretty well. I, look, I, I, I'd say this about the MBN. 
No one, look, my, my, my approach was just completely business-like. I, I mean, a lot of mistakes and a lot of money had been wasted before I got uh, control of it. So, you know, I couldn't undo what, what had been done. But my, my object was to focus on the customer. The goal was uh, connectivity and as quickly and as affordably as possible. You know, because the problem, the problem, one of the problems we, we had was that connectivity was very variable. I mean, some people had good, had good broadband. Some people, you know, had none. And uh, a lot of people had none or very little. And so anyway, we got, it, got in and it's, as you know, it's, it's about 95% finished or might, might even be a bit more than that now. But here's the thing. If we had not taken the pragmatic approach we did, it would be, half built, may, maybe it'd be 60% built, but there would be millions and millions and millions of Australians who would have at best ADSL. And, you know, they wouldn't be doing too much of this if that was the case, believe me. Okay, look, I'm conscious of time. I had a couple of uh, couple of things I wanted to ask you. Look, NISA, NISA was obviously a big uh, project of work very early in your tenure as Prime Minister. Um, there was kind of a, a before NISA and after NISA. I think it's had that kind of impact on the way we uh, yeah. the way we address this area. Can you step like you? I think there were nine ministers involved, eleven port- covering eleven portfolios. It was a really big chunk of work. What, what worked and what didn't? What would you do differently if you could do it right now in this environment? Well, that's a, that, you know, that, that's a, that, I haven't seen that analysis done as to what measures worked and what didn't. As far as I'm aware, nothing was, a, you know, a failure, like counterproductive. I think the, the insolvency, well, there's a whole host of reforms. And obviously all the tax breaks to encourage early-stage investment Yes, have worked well. We, you know, we are we have a stack now of venture capital, both for at the startup level and you know series and startup and series A and you know series B and C. There's the transformation of the Australian venture capital scene in the last three or four years is just massive, and and everyone in the industry acknowledges that, and a lot of them attribute it to the NISA, which I find very gratifying as an old uh, an old venture capitalist. But I think the uh, I think in some ways the element in the NISA that had the most impact was actually just talking about innovation and talking it up. You know, that bully pulpit of the prime ministership, that megaphone, is a very, very powerful one. And I think if you've got the prime minister talking, as I used to, you know, a lot about the importance of innovation, that encourages boards, super funds, investors to say, hang on, what are we doing in that field? And if it turns out they're not doing very much, they hop into it. So some of the industry funds are very big uh, investors now in venture capital, which if you go back five years, they would have thought you're insane suggesting to them they should go into, uh, into venture. You, you do note in your book, uh, in the chapter on innovation, that uh, not all of your colleagues thought it was a terrific idea to be talking at the no. level that you were talking. No, no, they didn't. No. Well, the, the general political view, which you often saw echoed in, in the press, particularly the Murdoch press, was that talking about innovation was a bad idea because it, it frightened people and made them anxious about the future. And the difficulty is that you can either lie to people, which is obviously 
not unknown in politics, and tell them that everything's going to be the same. Or you can be honest and say, look, the world is changing. Regardless of what we do, it's changing. And we either harness those changes and take advantage of them or they run over the top of us, you know, and they're the only choices. I mean, we are living in an age of change at a pace and scale we've never seen before. And, of course, a lot of it is being accelerated by this pandemic. There's a huge amount of change. So I guess, and and we'll wrap up with this, Malcolm, and I really appreciate you coming on, but that very night that you became Prime Minister, I think in your first press conference, you you spoke quite expansively about the opportunity and the enthusiasm Mm. for embracing, uh, embracing that change. So now that we are in this incredible period of change, I note that mm. you've made some recent investments in Miriotta, safety culture. Advanced navigation. Yeah. So, so you're, a, you're a private citizen making investments. Mm. How optimistic are you? Where are the areas of competitive advantage that you see in Australia? What are the things to be excited about right now? Well, I think technology, both big tech and new tech, is going to be stronger than ever. All of those trends towards using technology, whether it's you know remote communications like this, or um, remote working, or virtualization, are going automation are going to be accelerated. I mean, if you just take automation and AI, you know, obviously generally linked. So you've got every interest now to shorten supply chains. You know, people are going. This disruption is going to make. A lot of businesses say, do I really want to have this elaborate supply chain all over the world with all of the disruption risks that occasion it? And that's, of course, is that concern is enhanced by the geopolitical tensions, particularly between Washington and Beijing. So if you're going to do that, you're going to be relying on greater automation. And that's so you, you, I think you will see a lot of uh, manufacturing going back into developed countries, including the United States, where they can operate efficiently at scale because the labour component is much lower. I'd sort of divide it into two, you know, as I try to analyse this in my own mind, I'm dividing it into two buckets at the moment. This is evolving, by the way. I'd be very very grateful for your thoughts. On one hand, you've got trends that are pre-existing that will accelerate, like what we're doing. You know, I mean, Zoom wasn't invented because of the pandemic, but it's become, you know, ubiquitous because of it. E-commerce wasn't invented because of the pandemic, but it's been massively enhanced. So the trend away from off commercial space from bricks and mortar retail is going to accelerate. On the other hand, we had a trend towards greater density in cities. I've often said density is the solution, not the problem. Will people in a post-pandemic world regard density as the problem? And as a result of that, are we going to see some changes that were actually reversal or reversal of existing trends because of the pandemic? That's the thing that I'm particularly interested in. What are they going to be? And I think the way we live, cities particularly, is going to be part of that, but a lot's going to depend, of course, on how we cope with the virus. You know, do we get a vaccine? How soon do we get it? How effective is it? And so forth. Yeah, I guess uh, we're going to find out a lot of these things um, sooner rather than later. I think the, the, 
as you know, all of these changes accelerate. We didn't get a chance to talk about cities policy, which was obviously yeah. a, another big area of yours. Also, didn't really talk about China, which is always the elephant in the room. Whether it's yeah. well, we can do another podcast if you like. If you we, can, if you we, want it, we we can we can catch up again. But Malcolm Turnbull, thank you very much for. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. Thanks right. a lot. Terrific. See you. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco... Wishing you a great week ahead.